Malachi chapter 3. This evening, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, looking to finish the Old Testament tonight. I meant to look up the date that we began in Genesis for this particular journey through the Old Testament. And, um, but I w- didn't, uh, didn't find the time to do that, and it probably would have depressed all of you uh, anyway. <laughs> When we come uh, to chapter 3, last week as we were kind of concluding chapter 2, we stopped a verse short uh, of concluding uh, uh, chapter 2 because the final verse of chapter 2, verse 17, constitutes the introduction uh, to chapter 3. I'm not complaining about where they put the chapter uh, divisions in the Bible at all. Uh, but here's one of those places where I see why they put, uh, put the break there, but it does, uh, it does make it a little bit confusing if we just read it chapter to chapter. So Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. God says in, in what is a, a, the characteristic formula of addressing the children of Israel uh, in the book of Malachi, He says to them, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And so there is the accusation against them, the charge, and then their response to the charge uh, that he anticipates will be in their heart when they hear the charge. He gives it, uh, 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 he uh, uh, gives verbiage to it uh, so that they don't have to. And their response to, uh, you have wearied the, wor- uh, the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Give us an example of how we're wearying him. And then the Lord gives them the example in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he that is God delights in them. Or uh, you say, where is the justice uh, of the Lord? And so those were the uh, things that they were saying about God uh, and saying everyone, does, uh, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and God delights in them. Uh, they were saying that God, uh, the accusation was that God didn't care about evil in the world uh, and uh, He didn't care about the behavior of those that were evil in the world and uh, because they could not, as God's people, see any kind of immediate repercussions uh, of God upon the evil. So uh, God's patience was being viewed as a weakness in God. God being as patient as He is to judge evil and to judge uh, the wicked, they looked at it as if God doesn't do anything, won't do anything concerning evil uh, in the world, and it it, uh, stumbled them. It looked like to them that in this fallen world that we live in, that the righteous were uh, the ones that were bearing the brunt uh, of, uh, of life, the heart, had the harder life, and that the, uh, the evil or the wicked were uh, uh, rewarded by God much more than, than the righteous. So the accusation is, it doesn't pay to walk with God. It really doesn't make any difference at all uh, if, if you uh, do or don't, practically speak. Those that walk with God, uh, they have one portion. Those that don't walk with God seem to have a better portion. They seem to be wealthier, uh, healthier, wealthier and wise, so to, uh, so to speak. They also challenge God concerning uh, His justice. And they were here they're mocking the idea that God will ever intervene 
to bring an end to, uh, to wickedness, that he just doesn't care uh, about uh, evil or justice, just saying it in a different way. God, you give us all of these commandments. You give us the three, 613 uh, commandments of the, uh, the Old Testament. You give a warning that those who keep the commandments will be blessed. A, war, uh, a, a, a promise that those who keep the, the uh, commandments will be blessed. Those who disobey the promises will uh, be, uh, or the commandments will be rebuked, that they will be punished. And uh, you talk about these commandments, but you never back them up with, with a swift uh, judgment upon those who, who disobey the commandments. And the Lord uh, heard their words, and, uh, and they're basically expressing doubt about God's wisdom and His ways and, and His timing. And so uh, once you go there, that it doesn't really make any difference if you walk with God or you don't walk with God, and you happen to be the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, and that's your attitude and it comes out of you, now sin and evil, is, of course, is going to... Um, uh, explode within the culture, and, and so, so it was there in, in Israel. Now, the person who challenges the wisdom and the ways of God uh, is the person who says, if I were God, now we, we may say that jokingly, uh, certainly after we become a Christian, if I were God, I would do this, and we know we're not God and we're ill-equipped to be God, so we'll say it with a, a tongue-in-cheek. But to say it seriously, if I were God, I would do things different than the way that God uh, uh, does them. Now, a person that, that uh, has that kind of view, that, that looks and questions God's wisdom in his ways, think, is a person who thinks they're wiser and they're more uh, righteous than, than God. And so God has something to say to that person, and what he has to say to that kind of person that challenges his ways, challenges his wisdom and how he deals with evil, how he deals with the world as a whole, then he has a response uh, to that. Now, this shows us that this uh, dilemma that people uh, have and, and, uh, and an excuse that some people use for not believing in God, the idea that uh, the whole uh, argument of, of evil, the existence of evil, and, uh, and that the fact that God uh, that evil continues in the world is an indication that God is either one of two things. He is either unable or he is unwilling to bring uh, evil to an end. And so that's always a false dichotomy as if those are the only two uh, choices that God has in dealing with evil. The Bible teaches that he's going to deal with evil, but he'll deal with it his way in a far more thorough way than, than we can imagine, and he will deal with it in his time. I don't know how many of you sit in this room saved here today and uh, were thankful that the Lord didn't judge evil uh, any more quickly than, he, uh, than he's going to in the great tribulation period so that we might be saved. And, and so this kind of attitude that people have uh, toward God and, and, uh, and, and, and this, this frustration that even God's people can have, why doesn't he come and just knock the living daylights out of them? 
And, uh, and, and so often we get saved, God cleans up our act a little bit, and we forget that we were once a part of all of that, and we're glad that He showed enough grace and uh, patience in, in meeting out His, his uh, judgment upon these things so that we could be saved. And so what He, what he, is, uh, what he has done for us, He is still doing for, for others. And so that kind of sets things up in chapter 3. And the Lord uh, begins here in this fourth oracle of, of the book, and He declares, Behold, I send my messenger, uh, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so, in essence, what God is going to say to the children of Israel uh, in this oracle is, you want justi- justice? Uh, justice is, is coming. But uh, in the light of, and He's speaking here, and they're kind of very, very uh, uh, spiritual uh, decline uh, in appallingly low spiritual condition, God says, I am going to judge. I am uh, uh, going to bring uh, that judgment upon evil. And, uh, but as far as hearing that challenge from you, my justice is coming, but rather than questioning my justice and my ways, you would be far better off examining and questioning your own righteousness for the day when that judgment comes. So here's that, that arrogance that we can all get as, as Christians. And again, God cleans up our life a little bit, and now we begin to look down on, on uh, can look down on other people uh, and consider ourselves uh, superior as if we have brought these uh, beautiful changes that God has brought into our life, as if we've produced them uh, uh, on our own. And, uh, and, and look and say, uh, God is, is going... Any, well, let me put it this way. Anybody who looks at God and says, why don't you just hammer this world? Or why don't you hammer these uh, sinners? That person better be uh, very ready uh, in their own life to face the judgment and face the high standard of God's Word that they're asking to bring God to bring down on the world. And they were asking for a judgment upon the Gentile world because they assumed that judgment wouldn't begin in the house of God, as Peter tells us would, but that when judgment came into the world, it would be meted out against the, the Gentiles, and they, by virtue of being Jews, would be spared that. And so, anyone that calls for God's judgment upon the world ought to have... Um, uh, not only uh, not a log in our eye, uh, but not even to have a speck. And they weren't, they weren't in that kind of condition at all. And so God informs them now, you want justice? You want judgment? Well, I'll tell you, it's coming, but this is what it's going to look like. And that justice and that judgment is going to be uh, uh, dominated by the Messiah that I'm going to send in, into uh, to the world. And so He, he informs them of the future events that are going to be a part of bringing an end to to wickedness and to uh, injustice, namely in the second coming uh, of Jesus. He's going to judge uh, wickedness. He's going to judge evil in a way that they couldn't even uh, begin to dream of. 
uh, what they were thinking and hoping God would do in terms of a thoroughness would be like a slap in the hand in terms of how comprehensively God will one day deal with evil and, and, uh, and wickedness in the world. As we're here in this passage, as he talks about um, in, in verse 1, Behold I, that is the Father, send my messenger, speaking of John the Baptist, and he, that is John the Baptist, will prepare the way before me, speaking of the Messiah. In the Holy Spirit, in, in both of the uh, Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, they ascribe this uh, to uh, John, uh, John the Baptist. It, Jesus in His first coming, He came as the Lamb uh, of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came as the suffering Savior. At His second coming, He's going to come as a conquering King. And, uh, and at His second coming, He's going to deal decisively with all of these things. He will come uh, in order to judge at that time. Messiah or Jesus, who's called there in verse 1, God refers to him as the messenger of the covenant. We're told that he's going to have a forerunner who's going to prepare the way for his coming. This prophecy concerning this forerunner that would come into human history to prepare mankind for the coming of the Messiah, it has a near and partial fulfillment in uh, John the Baptist. It's far in full fulfillment will be in Elijah himself, as we'll see when we get to chapter 4 uh, this evening. John the Baptist, in terms of the, the past fulfillment of this uh, promise of a forerunner, uh, fulfilled in John the Baptist at Jesus' first uh, coming, Jesus declared in Matthew chapter uh, 17 when His disciples asked Him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They were confused. Here you are, you say you're the Messiah. Uh, but Malachi says Elijah is going to come before the coming of Messiah. And the scribes are using that as a reason to reject you as Messiah. What, what uh, is the answer uh, to that? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come and they did not know him, uh, did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist understood uh, his role in a partial fulfillment of this prophecy concerning the forerunner, the messenger before Messiah. He uh, declared of himself, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And Isaiah uh, spoke clearly related uh, to this uh, in saying that that, uh, that that forerunner of Jesus would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert a highway for our God. This prophecy is going to be ultimately and, and fulfilled in its, in its ultimate kind of, of sense by Elijah uh, concerning Jesus' second coming. And again, as I mentioned, we'll get to that in uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Messiah, we're told, Jesus is going to come 
the, uh, Malachi tells the Jewish people, he's going to come upon them uh, suddenly. And that word that's used for suddenly there indicates that his coming would be uh, unexpected. And so you might remember that uh, at the announcement of his birth, um, there was uh, what was it, Anna and Simeon were kind of the only ones that were hanging out at the temple for uh, in preparation and looking ahead to the coming uh, of the Messiah. Uh, when Jesus was born into the world, the, the children of Israel were largely asleep to the entire event. When Jesus began his public ministry 30 years later, they were uh, uh, just as asleep uh, concerning him and recognizing him uh, to, to be uh, the Messiah. So he came on them uh, unexpectedly. He shouldn't have been unexpected, but he did catch the, the uh, nation of Israel largely by surprise. Isaiah prophesied of this, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, a familiar passage. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so when Jesus came uh, in and began his public ministry, it was a uh, relatively collective yawn on the part in, in terms of recognizing his Messiah on the part of the Jewish people. John chapter 1 verse 10, he was in the world, the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And then later in John chapter 7 verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now the description uh, of uh, the world in, in the kingdom age that Jesus will establish, the thousand year reign uh, of Jesus, of Christ, following his second coming, uh, it's described in verses uh, two through five. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? You want judgment? Judgment is coming. Uh, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will uh, sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may uh, offer uh, to the Lord an offering of righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years, and I will uh, come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit uh, wage earners and, and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of uh, hosts. And so uh, God says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Verse 2, uh, you think God won't judge? He is going to judge. It is second coming. And, and the imagery that Malachi uses here in describing it is imagery that's intended to produce a, 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 a battle in, in their uh, minds. Who is able to stand uh, their ground when he comes to judge? And the answer is that the ungodly will not be able uh, to do so. Now, in addressing these uh, Jews so um, fearlessly in, in, in engaging in this 
uh, rebellion against God's word. Uh, the Jews, the, the Jesus, the, the Lord here through Malachi is speaking to Jews that in their mind, they only, uh, the only, the great judgment that is going to come to the, to the world that God promised to make, it would skip over them and it would be solely directed to the Gentiles, but not to them as well. And so he mentions there, uh, the refining in verse 3, purifying the sons of Levi, purging them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. He'll be like a refiner's fire, like launderer's soap. He's going to purge away all dross, all impurity from Israel, uh, from the world. And so the idea is you think God is never going to judge wickedness. Uh, all you need to go is to a jeweler's and watch him melt gold and melt silver and uh, the dross that is separated from what is pure. And that is going to be the ferocity of his judgment uh, one day. And in the kingdom age, in the thousand year reign of Christ, the Bible says that Jesus is going to reign in righteousness and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And the, and the point that that's making is there won't be any nonsense during the thousand year reign of Christ. Uh, so you won't have this long protracted kind of people uh, getting away with murder, so to speak, and getting away with, I forget, I was watching television the other day, some news, and, and I forget what city they were talking about, but I mean, fully half of the murders are not solved in that city. I mean, that, that's an astonishing percentage. I mean, it, it, if, if I was watching that and I was a murderer, I'd head straight there. Uh, but I'm not a murderer and, and I just was watching television. But, uh, but here, it won't, this kind of, there won't be this long leash during uh, that period. Uh, righteousness is, is going to uh, reign there and uh, God's going to be left with a people whose hearts are pure and because their hearts are pure and their lives are pure, they'll be able to offer pure uh, worship uh, to, uh, uh, to the Lord. And the offerings we're told there in verse 4 uh, of God's people will be pleasant to Him even as they were uh, in the past. Not the unpleasant experience that the worship of the children of Israel at the time of Malachi uh, was to, to the Lord. And in verse 5, we have God's way of just saying uh, that all rebellion against God's commandments are going to be uh, judged. And uh, the cause of all of that rebellion, both then and now, as he lists those sins, uh, is an absence of the fear uh, of the Lord. And so anyone who practices these kind of things, in essence, the Lord is saying, it, it, the, it, the core issue is that there will be no fear. There's no fear of me. That's, that's why there are sorcerers in the land and adulterers and perjurers and those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and so forth. And, uh, but during the kingdom age, people will be marked by a fear of the Lord and there won't be the practice of these things. Not just the fact that God uh, can come in and uh, hit you with a rod of iron. So that won't be the sole motivation for living righteously in the kingdom uh, age. And so I, don't, I remember one time I was uh, driving in my car and I saw a license I stopped at some kind of a light and there was a license plate holder in front of me and it and maybe you've seen it too uh, maybe you own one. Oh, maybe I better not say but uh, but it said always late and worth the wait well I had to get around that car and just look over and see 
who had such a, uh, a high self-esteem uh, related to that. And I, I looked at the person, and I, I thought, no. No, you're not. In your own mind you are, but you're not. I can tell. I can tell these things. God shows me these things. But the fact of the matter is it relates to, to the Lord is that he, uh, if you're going to give him a license plate holder, he's never late and he's worth the wait. And that's, that's how the perspective that has to be related to his judgment. It will come at the right time and, uh, and it is worth, uh, worth waiting for when one day uh, God uses it to bring all of that uh, to an end in the world to be under his oversight. In, chapter, uh, in verse 6, when he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. What God is saying uh, to them is that the only reason you people, speaking of the Jews, are not wiped out. You want, you want the world to be judged? You want to be so hard on the world? The only reason I haven't wiped you out a hundred times is because I don't change. Doesn't have anything to do with you. It's the fact that I don't change and I made promises to you to, to bless the you and the entire world. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's why you're not consumed. Uh, don't uh, be short with the world uh, in extending grace to them. Uh, not a people like you who have had so much grace extended to you. And of course, uh, all of us as Christians have, have had that kind of grace extended to us as well. And then at verse 7, he heads into his fifth oracle, and the Lord charges them, with uh, robbing him of tithes and offerings. And so if the deacons could just lock up the doors here and, and just get the offering bags uh, ready to go here, that's usually what happens in this particular uh, passage. Everybody puts their wallet in their front pocket uh, in, in uh, teaching about this. But the Lord says, you're so concerned about uh, justice, you're concerned about my ways, about my doings, and uh, well, let's, uh, let's focus on uh, how practically concerned you are uh, uh, about justice. And so uh, your part in a righteous world is to do what I've called you to do. You're so worried about me not doing my part in all of this that you've taken your eye off of what you need to do. I will always take care of my end of things. You keep your eye on what you're supposed to be doing uh, in, in the world. And uh, so often we can get that kind of a focus, focusing on, uh, you know, what God should be doing and He isn't doing, and we'd be much better off just entrusting uh, His job to Him and then focusing on what it is that He's called us to do. He said, from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinance. Ordinances. You have a long history of rebelling against my ordinances, and you haven't kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. So a call to repentance. Maybe you've heard the old saying, um, if uh, God feels far away, guess who moved? That's a little snarky. Uh, but there's a lot of truth to that as well. God never moves away from us. Uh, he never moves from where he is. Uh, distance in, in terms of our life and the need to return to God is never because God has moved from us, but that we've moved from him. And so he speaks to them now 
of their need, not for him to return to them, but for them to return uh, 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 to him, and then he will reciprocate there uh, in that way. And then, uh, uh, then he, he said, as he anticipated now uh, the, their, their question to what it is that he stated to him, uh, they, he stated to them that you, you, have, you don't keep my ordinances. And so they said, in what way do we need to return to you? Give us an example of this. Again, a pattern of the book. And then God gives them the example and he said, will a man rob God and yet you have robbed me? Now, uh, to me, uh, robbing people or stealing, a thief, but stealing is a despicable crime to me uh, because uh, how, I, how I view what other people own is uh, they spent a portion of their life, a very finite life, they spent a portion of it earning the money to buy that thing. And then a thief comes in and steals it uh, from him or her. It's a despicable crime to commit, uh, to be a thief in relationship to our fellow man. The only thing that can be more despicable in that vein is to steal from, uh, from God, to take something from Him, and, and, and this is what it is that, that God confronts them with. Will a man rob God? And when God says, will a man rob God, the idea is, who could even think they could get away with it? I mean, you want to talk about Tom Cruise trying to get past a security system to grab a diamond how do you steal anything successfully from god and uh, so you know the curiosity of it will a man rob god and yet you robbed me but you say in what way have you robbed uh, have we robbed you and God said in tithes and in offerings. God had spoken to the children of Israel and, and uh, giving carries over into the new covenant in the New Testament, but he spoke to the children of Israel and they were to give a tenth of their first fruits, of their income, whatever that might be. A tenth of that was to be given to God. And it was an acknowledgement of the fact that God, I recognize that Everything I have is yours. You have blessed me with the 100%. I know your word has called me now to give 10% to you to acknowledge that in a practical uh, way and, uh, and to express your lordship in my life in that way. There were other offerings too uh, in, in addition uh, to that. And so they had ceased giving at least proportionally and maybe altogether they had uh, robbed God in not giving him the tithes and the offerings uh, that he had um, uh, demanded of them in, in the law of, of Moses. And, and so uh, God tells them uh, about this and uh, confronts them with their failure here to obey his commands in that giving. And it, in, in, and it was in their case, and always the case, a sure sign of a, a, a loss of respect in their relationship uh, with him. God then further uh, informed them that this sin of theirs had resulted in a curse being upon them in verse 9. You are cursed with a curse. 
for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And so he elaborated, he elaborates on the, uh, the form that this curse takes in verse 11 when he talks about a devourer being in their midst and a devourer who was not, a devourer who was adversely affecting their productivity of their crops in the form of maybe a drought or in the, in, in the form of, of insects or whatever it might be. And now this devourer is in the, in the, on the verge of, of destroying them. In other words, God spoke to them and he said, you're doing this to me, and I'm not going to let you be uh, successful in robbing me any more than I'm going to allow you to be successful in, in robbing uh, any uh, other person or to be successful in any other sin. And so God said, I'm going to take my tithe out of your crops by means of this devourer. And so the point being uh, that uh, every child of God, and under the old covenant here, every child of God uh, tithes, God says. Whether it, you do it, you tithe to the Lord, and if you don't tithe to the Lord, then you will tithe to your doctor, or you will tithe to your dentist, or to your plumber, or to your auto mechanic. But that 10% is going to leave your hands in some way you will e either give it to me or it will be given to others, but it will not be left in your hands. And, and so uh, he, he speaks to them uh, of that fact. Sometimes a person can say, I, I, I seem to be cursed financially. And, and it's a good thing to look and say, what is the place of uh, honoring uh, God, obeying God and giving to him in a New Testament way? and uh, acknowledging him as the source of all that I have and thanking him uh, for that provision in, in the giving uh, to him uh, in this, this new covenant. We can all hit, I mean, it, 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 at our house here in the, it, it, a month ago or so, uh, so the air conditioner goes out in Karen's uh, car. I'm not gonna tell you what it costs. We missed the warranty by, and then, um, but she didn't need air conditioning. <laughs> So we had to get it fixed, of course. Then the refrigerator went out, and then I forget what the third thing was, but we're talking about thousands of dollars all in one swoop. And so I said to Karen, what secret sin is in your life that is causing all of this to come upon us? And, uh, and, and she feigned ignorance, just like the children of Israel, here in Malachi, so I sat down and I read the whole thing to her again so she'd understand. But so this stuff just happens. It rains on the just and the unjust. So I'm not saying it's always that way, but our, there, our finances will never be right unless God is honored and he is, uh, he is respected and obeyed in, in giving to him. And then uh, God commanded them uh, the solution to it was to bring the tithes into the storehouse, never too late to obey, that there may be food in my house. And so his house speaks of the temple. And so the giving under that old covenant uh, that was given, it was in order to uh, uh, s supply the offerings that were 
offered on a daily basis, a weekly basis, monthly, yearly basis at the temple, also to uh, supply for the uh, necessities of the priests and the Levites, who God called to that for them to do, uh, spend their life in that way, also the maintenance of of the temple. And so he said, bring it in uh, that there can be food in my house. And evidently, uh, uh, those, uh, those that were serving him in this capacity were doing without food uh, on some level as a result of this neglect. And then God said, and try me now in this. It's, it, we know that in the scriptures, the Bible says that we're never to tempt God. We're never to tempt him, to test him. Okay, God, I'm going to walk off this cliff and if you're really God, uh, or uh, almost as disastrous, I'm going to buy a motorcycle, and God bless you if you have a motorcycle, but be careful uh, out there with it. But we're not to tempt God in, in that kind of a way to, to prove himself. This is the only place I know in the scriptures where God uh, calls upon his people to tempt them, and it is, uh, try him, and it's in this area. Try me now, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings as there would not be room enough to receive it. So he says, just return to the law of Moses. Just do what I've called you to do. I'm supplying you with all that you need. Uh, for your own needs and also to acknowledge me in all of this. And if you do it, all of those blessings in your life are going to be uh, going to come, come forth. And I'll show you that I can do more with 90% than you could ever do with 10%. And the issue with God is that it's never about money. It's about what, we, what and who we trust in, uh, in life. Now, under the, uh, under the old covenant here, in terms of the ties that he's talking about in, 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 uh, in this, the, the person who isn't tithing is typically going to be a person whose uh, God is money. And so their trust is in money, and so that's what they're, they're going to obey money before they obey God. They may b- obey God in every other area of their life, but in this area of their life, money has the upper hand. And, uh, and, and so uh, the, the issue is, is that uh, you need to settle the issue of my lordship in the area of your finances. And, uh, and if you do that, uh, then all, all of this blessing, the way that I want to bless you is going to uh, come, come forth abundantly. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes and uh, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground and nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. When the nations of the world see your prosperity, they will call you blessed. I mean, you, not only will you know you're blessed, but the whole world will know you're blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says uh, the Lord of hosts. And so uh, the Lord speaks to them, challenges them, challenges us in our own giving uh, today and whatever he calls us to give to him and uh, uh, to uh, be obedient in this and to, to watch how he chooses to bless, uh, to bless 
obedience. The sixth oracle here begins in verse 13, and uh, the Lord rebukes the priests. He rebukes the people as a whole for a false charge that's uh, bringing, being brought uh, against him. He charges them with blasphemy. He says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Now imagine that, God coming, if he came to you one night and said, your words have been harsh against me. It's like, what? I mean, that's quite a charge for God to make against uh, some a group of people who are claiming to represent them in the world. So it's pretty serious business. And so, again, the pattern of the book, God anticipates the question that his, his charge would produce in their mind. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And then he informs them of it. He'd been listening to their conversations. You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we, uh, and that we have walked as uh, mourners? And so this was the, the things that they were saying. Walk, uh, walk before Him as mourners uh, before the Lord of hosts. And so uh, it's useless to serve God. There's no profit in keeping His uh, commandments. It doesn't pay to obey uh, uh, God. And, uh, and concerning the people, you know, the idea that, the, again, that the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. So what's the point of obeying God? If God again, if God is not going to actively and immediately deal with wrongdoing so that the wicked continue to prosper and the righteous continue to, uh, to suffer, if God's not going to deal with sin and wickedness in, in that way, then maybe we're wasting our time uh, following uh, Him. And if God's going to act this way, He certainly isn't earning His 10%, or whatever they might uh, think of related uh, to that. So they view God, again, His patience with people to give them space to repent as a weakness uh, in, in him and, or as an evidence that he didn't care about uh, his people. Of course, Peter writes uh, wonderfully of all of this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but as long-suffering, speaking of his judgment that he's going to bring on the world, but as long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to uh, to repentance. And so the, for the priests, they looked at it and say, you know, kind of the, the, the work reward ratio uh, isn't worth it. We're getting, we are, as God's people, putting in way more than we're getting out of this. Imagine that. Imagine saying that to God. And, and then having it make you have a second thought about following God. Wait a second, God, in this, this relationship, relationship I've got with you, it looks pretty unbalanced. It looks like I'm giving a lot more to this than I'm getting out of this. And that's, that's the attitude that they had. That's the attitude of a child of God who only measures the blessings of God in terms of material things. But no one who has walked with God any length of time and understands how to measure the true riches of the Christian life would ever conclude that. What dollar amount do you put upon the peace that is ours as Christians? The forgiveness of sins, a cleansed conscience, salvation, 
a relationship with God, the promise of heaven, the promise of eternity with God. But here you have the person that is so carnal, they only look at it as uh, um, I'm putting in this amount of time, and if I put this amount of time in over here and had a job on this, I would be reaping more than a purely physical kind of level. And they, ha- it, it, they are, have completely lost sight of, of how rich God makes us in so many other ways in, in life. And, and it's just a mark of just how, how uh, gone uh, that they are. And, they, and then they make the accusation that the only result of, of serving God is that we've walked like mourners uh, before Him with all of the fasting and, and the mourning and, and the sobriety that's required in, in being a priest. We live, uh, are living the life of a mourner, living a life that is like a funeral that never ends. And then in uh, verse uh, 15, uh, the Lord says, uh, so now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. And so instead of, contrary to the Lord's word, God's people were saying, uh, they were calling the proud blessed. They were calling, uh, they, they exalted and they promoted those who practice wickedness. Uh, those that tempted uh, God went unpunished in their oversight of the things uh, of the Lord. And then, In verse 16, God turns his direction to a remnant. And there's always a remnant among God's people. And that's why it's important never ever to, to, always for our, our relationship with God to have a corporate element. That, that we, we uh, enjoy fellowship with him, we enjoy Christian growth and these things with one another. But we also have an individual responsibility before God and a personal relationship with God. And the point I'm making is that if the corporate of the body of Christ goes sideways to the degree that this group has gone sideways, then I have to look at what is representing itself as Christianity and saying, I can't go with that. I am going to walk with God the way that God says I'm to walk. So the fact that uh, uh, the body of Christ as a whole or the body of Christ in part or a church may go sideways is never uh, an excuse for me to do so. We always have the ability to be a remnant, to be different uh, uh, from, from that. And so the Lord says, then those who uh, feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened to them. So you did have people who listened to the message of Malachi. They were still drop dead serious about God. And when they heard what Malachi was saying, they took it uh, seriously and they began to speak to one another about what Malachi was saying. Did you hear what he said? And what about my life? And what about your life? And this makes sense. Didn't God say that to Moses? And they took it seriously, uh, uh, seriously enough to apply it to their own lives and then for it to become a source of conversation. Within, within their lives among the children uh, of, of Israel. And the interesting thing is the Lord, we're told here that the Lord listened and he heard them. 
It's nice to realize that, that the Lord listens to our conversations that we have about Him. I, th- I think about this often when, when I phone someone, uh, you know, and, and uh, it, it may be a little later in the evening or whatever it might be, and, and, uh, and they've got a situation maybe going on in their life, and we begin to just uh, talk and maybe counsel a little bit, and, and, but inevitably we start talking about the Lord, how good He's been, how He never makes a mistake, and, 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 uh, and, and how faithful He's been in our life, and, and so forth. And, and, it's, and, and I always stop and think about the fact that he is, a, he is a third person in this phone call because He listens to those conversations. And not only does He listen to them, so a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate uh, upon His uh, name. So He listens to those conversations and, uh, and that book of remembrance, a permanent kind of remembrance of, of uh, our response to His Word and response to uh, his commandments and his voice and and the conversations related to him uh, that that permanent remembrance is kept uh, in in heaven and he took note of it he always takes note of the group even in the midst of the kind of apostasy that's going on here he always takes note of the group that continues on walking with him even in the face of that. And that's a hard place for a Christian to be where we're already kind of slogging against the stream and against the tide and flow of the world. And then now you've got to fight against uh, a low view of God, a low view of obeying God's Word among God's people. And it's not easy. And so there's this encouragement. I mean, you're made out to be the fanatic, the crazy person. And uh, this is a new day. This is a new Christianity. What are you, a nut? And, uh, and, uh, and so we need this kind of encouragement that God takes note of it and that He appreciates it if nobody else does. And, and He will never, ever forget it. He gives His promises to the faithful here. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that, that day, I will make them my jewels. So be speaking of, of their va- uh, the, how valuable and, and priceless that uh, such a saint is to him. And I will spare them uh, as a man spares his own son who serves him. And so he's going to spare them speaking. He's going to elaborate here in a little bit in chapter 4, verse 1, talking about the great tribulation uh, the, being spared. Uh, the uh, righteous judgment that is going to come upon the wicked, and then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between uh, one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. And and at that time, there's going to be a clear distinction between the righteous uh, and the wicked. So again, God is saying, if it looks like obeying me doesn't pay outwardly, uh, in, in your assessment of, of things, it does. Because your obeying me separates you and me from the wicked in God's eyes. And that's going to be very, very important on the day of, of God's judgment. Then as he goes into chapter 4 here, uh, he begins by saying, uh, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. You want judgment? 
It's coming, and here's the description of it. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly uh, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, uh, that, uh, that will leave them neither root nor branch. And so the second coming of Jesus here, uh, speaking about the judgment that he will bring at that second coming, the judgment that will occur at the battle of Armageddon, but also the separation of uh, the sheep and the goats, uh, uh, the sheep going into the, the thousand-year reign, the goats going into, uh, into Hades to await uh, the ju- white throne judgment of, uh, of, of Gehenna. And so he said when this judgment is done and ultimately uh, following the thousand-year reign of Christ, everything is going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and you won't even have a trace of wickedness. That's how thorough and completely and wisely God is going to deal uh, with uh, uh, wickedness and evil in the world in a way that they couldn't even uh, believe. They were looking for band-aids. God says, I'm going to clean uh, the whole thing up again. Don't you worry about me taking care of business. You just take care uh, that you you walk with me. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like uh, stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. And so he promises for the righteous uh, that that day, that uh, the judgment of his second coming, It's going to be a day of healing and prosperity and victory for those who fear the Lord. When he refers to here, uh, it makes reference to this son uh, of righteousness is going to arise with healing in his wings. It's the only place this phrase occurs uh, in the Bible, the son of righteousness, and it refers uh, to Jesus, again, who is going to uh, bring the dawn of a new day at his second coming and bring an end to the darkness of sin and, and, and a man's rebellion against God, again, ushering in a new age, the kingdom of age, and then ultimately uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And all of that uh, righteousness is, is going to enter into uh, human history in a way that it never has uh, uh, before. And it's going to be likened to the sun and spring uh, awakening nature to a, a new life after a long, cold winter. And so God is going to take care of things, and it's going to be well taken care of, and it's going to be uh, beautiful. And the freedom that we're going to have, uh, the triumph over wickedness that the righteous will enjoy. And then in verse 4, he reminds them to remember the law of Moses, my commandment, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and uh, judgments. And so he calls them to remember the law of Moses with the idea of obeying it. Uh, to obey uh, the law of Moses. Remember that it promises blessings to those who obey. It promises cursings to those who disobey. Get back to the law of Moses and get back uh, to the, being on the right side uh, of those promises. And then in verse 5, he returns to this subject of 
uh, of Elijah and, uh, and uh, that Elijah will precede Jesus at his, his second coming. He's going to send, uh, God is going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming day of the Lord and uh, before Jesus' second coming associated with the tribulation period. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day uh, of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest, they, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You might remember that Elijah the prophet did not die a natural death. He was taken into heaven in a fiery chariot and uh, he is going to uh, return uh, to prepare the Jews and the world for Jesus' second coming, the same way that John the Baptist did at Jesus' uh, first coming. And uh, Elijah is without a doubt going to be one of the two witnesses of the tribulation period, as we've studied recently in Revelation on, on Sunday uh, morning. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons that I believe that the, the, the ministry of the two witnesses, uh, Elijah and then most likely in my mind, Moses, as they represent the law and the prophets before the children of Israel, their ministry will be to the children of Israel, as we mentioned on the Sunday mornings, uh, as they come in and out of this uh, temple that the Antichrist has allowed them to rebuild. They will be preaching to them, uh, working miracles to turn them to Jesus as uh, the Messiah. And so when it speaks about Elijah coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the tribulation period, seven-year period, it's broken into two parts. The seven-year tribulation period, the first part is the tribulation. It's the second part that's called the great tribulation when the greatest kind of judgment that is poured out. And I think that Elijah and Moses will minister during the time of the rebuilding of that temple, calling the Jews and the world to repentance and a faith in Christ. And, uh, and, and then they will be killed by, by the Antichrist. And then all of this uh, judgment will, uh, the greatest portion of judgment during the tribulation as it's recorded in, in Revelation will then uh, unfold and all of it uh, culminating in, in Jesus' second coming. The effectiveness of Elijah's ministry during those three and a half years of preaching there in Jerusalem before uh, he and in my mind, Moses are, are martyred only to be resurrected three days later. But the effectiveness of, uh, of Elijah at that time, we're given a hint of it here in verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. If the Jewish people do not heed his message to turn to Jesus as the Messiah during the three and a half years they, uh, that he ministers, they certainly will remember his message at the time that the Antichrist comes into the temple, rebuilt temple, at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation period, the midpoint, sits himself down in the Holy of Holies, declares himself to be God, and demands to be worshipped as God, and then Everyone will remember we, uh, that what it was that Elijah told them 
and uh, that we have been badly deceived by the Antichrist, and, uh, and then heed Jesus' warning to uh, run uh, for your life. And so here is, uh, again, a, I think a hint of, of the effectiveness of their ministry during the tribulation uh, period. So next Sunday night, we'll move on to the gospel according to John in the New Testament. And, uh, but as we leave this, uh, this book of Malachi tonight, let me just recap his charges uh, to them to allow them to search our own, own lives in relationship with God. They were in a very, very um, sad, sad, terrible spiritual condition. And here's uh, the reasons why. God rebuked them for their questioning His love for them uh, despite a long history of uh, of his blessings and his caring for them, uh, blessings that were all around them if they would have opened their eyes to it. God rebuked them for treating him in a way that they would have never dreamed of treating another human being, would have never dreamed of treating uh, their, their governor and only giving him the leftovers of their lives. God rebuked them for their uh, uh, low view, appallingly low view of their Christian service. They called it a weariness. They sneered at it instead of engaging in Christian service with a, with a deep sense of privilege. God rebuked them for, for profaning His institution of marriage with their very, very casual attitude toward uh, divorce. He rebuked them for challenging the justice and the wisdom of God, as we've seen tonight in dealing with uh, human affairs. He charged them with robbing him of tithes and offerings and evidence that they trusted in money more than they uh, trusted in uh, him. And so all of these things uh, were a sign that their spiritual lives were unraveling. And all of these things, as they would be present in our own lives here today, would be an indication that our spiritual lives are unraveling as well. And so they're good things to take and allow them to search uh, our hearts and our lives and make sure that, uh, that we don't leave the book of Malachi with any of these areas that, uh, uh, that we have in common with the Jews of, uh, of that time, uh, untouched by uh, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God tonight, and say, well, we finished the book of Malachi and uh, it didn't touch me. Well, if it didn't need to touch us, then it doesn't need to touch us. But if it needs to, we want it to do its work as well. It's a tremendous mirror uh, put before us. Very helpful for me in trying to assess my own walk with the Lord. I live in this crazy world and where everything's getting redefined and even in the church, things getting redefined. I need to have something true to come to and test my Christian life against. And, and these are truths that are invaluable for that. If you sit here this, this evening and you are not yet a Christian, God wants you saved, we want you saved. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, be born again, and begin a relationship with God that will go on forever. It's all there for the asking and the receiving. If you need prayer for anything in your life tonight, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for the book of Malachi and we have certainly um, 
felt the sting of this book and um, the strength of this book. We have recognized some, to some degree in each of our lives uh, the attitude of the people um, uh, toward you and how oblivious they were to their spiritual condition. We at least acknowledge the fact that uh, that is there in our flesh and that we're capable of descending into that kind of a low spiritual life. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, the rebuke of those things, our eyes being uh, uh, reopened to how important it is what you have called us as your people to do in the world in this time in human history. Thank you for your word. Nobody talks to us like this anymore in the world. We thank you that you talk to us and you will always tell us the truth. And then always give us, Lord, a place of escape. Infuse hope, Lord, in, uh, in even being very, very straightforward with us in our need to repent and to turn to you. You are a wonderful God. You are a wonderful Heavenly Father. We are grateful for you tonight. And we uh, thank you and we praise you tonight for who you are, what you've done in our lives, what you mean to us, Lord, uh, the person you are making us into. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucy, would you close us?